It is good to see you in the Lord's house this morning. I want to invite you to take God's Word. Let's turn together to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, as we continue our preaching and teaching series through Philippians. As you're turning there, let me just thank you for praying for Antioch Baptist and your pastor as I was with them in revival this past week. I uh, want you to know that, that God uh, was doing a great work in and through those precious believers. Uh, it was good to meet our brothers and sisters in Christ and, and see their love for Jesus and hear their worship and be a part of that and see God stirring their hearts. So I want to encourage you to continue to pray for Antioch Baptist and our friends and our family from Fife, Alabama, as we worship today and as they're gathering. As we continue our series in Philippians 4, we're going to begin to hear a pastor's heart from the Apostle Paul in a different light than we have heard it before. He urges these believers to stand firm in the Lord as they stand together with the same mindset that they have in Christ as the people of God. If you have your place in Scripture, I want to invite you to stand in honor of God's Word and the reading of it if you're able, and follow along beginning with verse 1, Philippians 4. I want to welcome those who are with us online, and we thank you for joining us today for worship. Verse 1, chapter 4, Philippians. Therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and crown, stand fast in the Lord, beloved. You hear that pastor's heart, don't you? And then he gets down to meddling. I implore Euodia, and I implore, implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. They are family of God. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say what? Rejoice and let your gentleness be made known to all men, for the Lord is at hand. Let's pray. Father, we ask by your Spirit, guide our thoughts, give us focus, but give us application of your word that is truth so that we could be of the same mind, so that we can press on together for the gospel mission, so that our Savior can be lifted up, that others may know Him and grow to be like Him. And it is in His mighty name we pray, amen and amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we have begun the study of Philippians, we realize that this congregation was near and dear to the heart of the Apostle Paul. As he shared that good news of the gospel on his second missionary journey, and you saw the birth of that church, but also there was a special relationship with this group of believers with Paul, and, and so he was close in to them. He had a heart that beat strong for them. And this was a good church. God was at work in this church, and it was filled with many wonderful people. But what we see here is that even in good or great churches made up of wonderful believers, we are still an imperfect people. We still struggle with the temptation to sin. We still struggle to get along with one another. Why? 
because we are imperfect. It's just like a, a marriage. There is no perfect marriage this side of heaven. Why? Because it's one imperfect person marrying another imperfect person, and therefore you're going to have some imperfection in that relationship. As the body of Christ, we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Our sin debt is paid in full. When we leave this old world, we have the guarantee that we have a home in heaven. That's where our citizenship is. And because we have a home in heaven, we can rest assured today that we are children of God, sojourners, aliens here headed for our forever home. But while we're here, we are called to live life together. We are called to be on mission together as the body of Christ. And it's this together thing we sometimes struggle with. It's the together thing that, that we might experience some differences of opinions, some conflict in relationship. And then Paul is looking at this congregation and spurring them on. I want you to come together and be of the same mind so that together we can go forward in the gospel mission. And I want us to hear the heart of a true pastor in Paul and his counsel to these good people that were being threatened by some internal conflict among believers. For our good, for their good, for the sake of the gospel mission, may we have ears to hear. Here's a, a statement that kind of summarizes where Paul is headed. We must stand together in the Lord if we hope to stand firm against the devil who is against us, stand firm in the world around us that is pagan, and if we hope to stand firm against the temptations of even our own flesh. We must stand together in the Lord if we hope to stand firm in the gospel mission. Our passage unveils two big truths. If you have your sermon notes, there's only two main points, and this is number one, and it's in verse one. Christian unity is essential. So what Paul is talking about in this wonderful church filled with godly kind of people who love Jesus and are called to love one another, he's pointing out that unity inside the body is essential because of the gospel. And so in verse 1, look at it. It's a pastoral tone. There are five descriptive words of these believers at Philippi. My beloved, long for brethren, my joy and my crown, and then he ends it with beloved. Beloved and beloved, book into them. Uh, dearly affectionate terms that, that Paul uses. Paul is letting them know out of the gate, I love you. I really do. You're dear to my heart because you know what he's getting ready to do? He's getting ready to meddle in their business. And with some strong exhortation, let them know what they need to get right. It's kind of like parents sometimes. Any of us parents in our parenting journey, have we ever looked at our kids and said before we got on to you know I love you, right? I remember one whipping with a belt that I got one time, and I heard, you know I love you, and you know this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. I, I disagree with that side of it, but I never disagreed with the fact that dad loved me or mom loved me. 
I don't think these believers struggle with the concept that Paul really, really loved them. Verse 1 is a transitional verse. We ended with it last week. We're beginning with it this week because actually that word therefore, every time you see a therefore, you need to look and check out what it is there for. It's a connecting term. So it connects what he has just said with what he is about to say. And so in light of that, Paul says, especially in light of what I've just told you in verse 17 through 21, here's my exhortation that you stand firm in the Lord. In other words, you persevere in the gospel mission. You stick with it. You endure. Don't give up. Stand firm in the Lord. It's an appeal to persevere in light of our heavenly citizenship. This world is not our home in light of the glorious return of Jesus, that at any day he could return. So if he returns today, be where you're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to do, the way that you're supposed to do it, be found faithful in the gospel mission. And so Paul is leaning into them because he's about to unveil a blemish in their fellowship. Because you are citizens of heaven, don't give up. Press on. Even when it gets hard, press on. By God's grace, keep your eyes on faithful examples. Remember, Paul said, imitate me and imitate others like me, like Timothy and Epaphroditus. Imitate them, not the bad examples, not those who are self-absorbed and and seeking the things of the world, but imitate those whose eyes are on Christ and are running after him. The word, uh, the command, stand firm, is from the Greek word steko, and and it's the main verb in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 4. It's the command. It has a military ring to it. Like soldiers on the front line of the battlefield, stand firm in the Lord. Don't give an inch. In our marriages that are in Christ, stand firm in our family life, in the parenting role that is difficult, stand firm. That's why it's a joy for a congregation like Liberty to say, we believe it's God's call upon our life to come alongside of parents, invest in them, and help them win for the sake of the gospel in their homes because we're in this together. Stand firm. Don't back away from that. That's why we have grandparenting by grace and e-groups and teaching us new grandparents and those that have been grandparents for a long time, we still have a mission. And that mission is to stand firm in the gospel mission as we pray for, as we instruct, and as we live by example the gospel in front of them. Stand firm in your own sanctification, your walk with Jesus, growing up to be like him. Stand firm in your serve in the gospel mission. The time is short. Jesus could come at any moment. The world is in need of a savior. The gospel mission that God has given us matters. So stand firm in it. Don't back up. Don't give way. And also stand firm in your relationship with one another, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. How you treat one another, how you speak to one another, how you relate to one another matters for the sake of the gospel. Paul wants the Philippians to walk in the way that he's about to describe. He wants them to persevere in this work of unity that, by the way, is not natural. 
We don't drift into unity. We drift into adversity to continue showing graciousness to one another, to continue to have the joy of the Lord as our strength and rejoice in the Lord always, to continue praying in order to battle against this thing called anxiety and to continue thinking right thoughts. We'll get there next week. Paul doesn't simply tell these believers to stand firm in their own strength. There's a qualifying prepositional phrase, in the Lord. Our strength is in the Lord, who is the Alpha and the Omega, who is the God with whom all things are possible, who is the soon and coming King, that we can stand firm in the Lord. And I thank God that He has not called us to be faithful in our own strength and stand on our own two feet. And if you make it good, if you don't, well, I'm sorry. He didn't do that. He placed his spirit within us. His power, that resurrection power abides within you and me so that we can, by his strength, be firm and not give in as it comes to the mission he's called us to do. Go knock that thing over one day. Paul mentions... The centrality of our relationship and position in Christ. Look at verse 2. Be of the same mind in the Lord. Verse 4. Rejoice in who? In the Lord. And then verse 7. That peace of God that passes all understanding will indeed guard your hearts and minds. How? In Christ Jesus. Paul unveils a sad but true reality that conflict can occur and does occur even in the most committed believers in the church. If I were to ask you to raise your hand and have a poll and say, have you ever had a conflict with a brother or sister in Christ? My guess, if we're being honest, is every one of our hands will go up. No church, by the way, escapes conflict or occasional strife. You know why? We're imperfect people. And we are in a family together. Guess what families experience? Conflict, strife. Every family on the face of this earth is going to have conflict and strife at some point. How we relate to that, how we handle that when it happens is what honors the Lord. We're all imperfect people, tempted to be selfish and fleshly, and tempted to be full of pride when it comes to others. It's when, not if, conflict occurs. How do we handle it? Paul says, I'm calling two people in this church to handle their conflict in a way that honors Christ. But here's what I'm asking them to do. Stand firm in the Lord, but handle the conflict and get on with the gospel mission. You can't stay there. It's going to come. But how we respond to times of conflict does matter because disunity in the body of Christ distracts us from the main mission that God has called us to do. When we're at odds with one another, that's sideways tension. And anytime the devil makes us at odds with one another, then we lose focus on what he has called us to do and be. Because we're battling these battles with one another. Now, are these battles real? Yeah, You get in a conflict, you know it's personal. You know it's hurtful. You know it's full of emotion. You know it's not easy. But Paul says, hey, when it comes, and it's going to come, then there is something you need to do. Stand firm in the Lord as you deal with this conflict. 
Unity, as we read the New Testament, is absolutely essential because the church is the body of Christ. Many members, we're all different, we're all unique, but we're joined together in Christ. He's the head of the body. We're members of the body. And if any one member suffers, we all feel it. If any one member is not functioning in body life and serving the Lord like we are called to do, then we all feel it. When there is conflict in this body, then we all feel the pain of that. And it distracts us from our mission and from our purpose. The secret to unity begins with how we view ourselves within the body and how we view others. Go back to Philippians chapter 2 and look at verse 3. Philippians 2, 3, remember what Paul said there? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider, what's that word? Others more significant than yourself. He goes on in chapter 2 and he says, Each of you should look out not only for your own interest, but also for the interest of who? Others. Others matter. If you want to do a good Bible study, do the one another passages in the New Testament, like love one another, forgive one another, and uh, you, you will be amazed as to what we're called to do for one another. Ephesians 4 and verse 1 and following, Paul says to those believers in Ephesus, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity in the body of Christ is essential for the mission that God's called us to be about. Unity is essential. Christian unity, and the reason it's essential, is built, number two, on the gospel. Christian unity is built on the gospel. We all were sinners. Our sins separated us from a holy and a righteous God. But God made the first move, and He loved us while we were yet sinners and rebellious. He sent His Son, Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, who came and lived on the face of this earth, fully God, fully man. He lived out that life of perfect righteousness that the law demanded, but we could not hold up under because we're sinners and we break one law, then we're guilty of all of it. And so we were sinners condemned already in our sin. We were sinners already under the wrath of this holy God, but God, rich in mercy and abounding in love, sent his son to rescue us and to redeem us. He did so by dying in our place. Philippians chapter 2, he emptied himself out and he became obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross, so that he took our place. He received our death penalty. He took on the wrath of a holy God on our behalf so that our penalty for sin could be paid in full through his sacrifice. He died, but thanks thanks be to God, he rose again on the third day and he is victorious over death, over the bondage of sin, and he's already defeated the enemy. So that in the name of Jesus and his name alone, by grace, we don't deserve it, 
through faith, putting our trust in what he did on our behalf, we are born again. Hey, dear church, that is reconciliation. That is what Christ did for us. And if he so much did that for us, then he calls us to be like him. In Philippians 2, 5, Paul was very clear, let this mind attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What is that? That is that attitude of humility, of esteeming others more significant than us. Let me ask you, is that natural? I can promise you for us preachers who can strut while we're sitting down, it's not natural for this, this one but it's by God's grace and the work of His Holy Spirit that we can stand firm in the Lord in that humility. It's by God's grace that we can stand firm with one another, even when we're different and even when you got some things that just bug the stew out of me. It means that even though our preferences may be different, what binds us together is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though we're unique and different and we have different thought process, God has made us the way we are so that we can be unique members in a body that, has full, that is full of diversity, but our unity is in Christ and the mission that he called us to be about. We can work together in unity for the sake of the gospel. Christian unity is built on that gospel message. I can't imagine what happened in that church service when Paul sent this letter, perhaps by the hand of Epaphroditus. They didn't have the iPhones. They didn't have Internet. They didn't have Zoom meetings. But they sent a handwritten letter. And the way they were normally handled in the life of a local church like Philippi is somebody would read the letter. Can you imagine sitting there while this letter, chapter 4, is being read? Can you imagine being Euodia or Syntyche, and you're sitting there and you're just soaking up everything Paul is saying? You might be even amen in Paul, and then all of a sudden he called you out in church? You ever been called out in church? I'm PK, I have. My dad didn't hesitate to call me out. They were called out. That was an awkward moment. They were sitting there with their peers. These women we don't know a whole lot about, but we do know that they were very prominent in this church at Philippi, and Paul called them out. I urge Euodia, I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Paul's directness And Philippians 4 speaks of the critical nature, the seriousness of division in the church. It was more than a passing disagreement. It's something they came to an impasse with. Apparently, it was causing confusion and consternation in the church. So there was sideways tension so that they were kind of stalled in the mission that God had called them to be. Disunity among believers always creates sideways tension and distracts us from our mission. Keep that in mind. Why does Paul call them out by name? Go back to verse 1, and there are five descriptions that give you an idea. Because he loved them. He loved them too much to allow them to be out of fellowship with their Lord. He loved them too much to let them be at odds with one another, and they were sisters of Christ in the body of Christ. He loved them too much to leave them there. He loved the gospel mission too much to be quiet. So not much is known about these women. 
But we do know in studying the New Testament, like these two women, women in general played a prominent role in the early church. You go back to Acts chapter 16, and you realize real quick, women were a prominent role in this church beginning. It was women on the riverside that were meeting for a prayer meeting when Paul shows up. Several facts about them that we do know. First, they were church members, not troublemakers from outside the church. They were family. Second, their dispute was not a doctrinal dispute. How do we know that? This man named Paul, he had called it out. He had addressed it very specifically. It was not a moral dispute. How do we know that? Because he'd called their sin out, if it would have been. It was probably relational. It could have been leadership style. It could have been a preference of how we do a ministry. It could have been a lot of things. We don't know, and I think the Holy Spirit of God left it vague so that it has a bigger application for us. Third, they were prominent women, well-respected in the church. What happens when prominent, well-respected believers are in conflict? I can tell you what happens. Everybody in the church knows it. My first church out of seminary, I had a deacon that sat on this side and a deacon that sat on this side, and they're brothers-in-law. And it took me about three months, and I realized why that one sat over here and that one sat over there, because they had a history of conflict. Do you think everybody in that church knew about those two deacons and the conflict? Absolutely. Do you think the community around that little church understood the family conflict that these two families have? I can promise you they did. And so that's what Paul is putting his finger on. That's what he's leaning into. Your conflict with another believer is not just a private matter. It becomes a family matter, particularly when it's prominent people in the body of Christ in leadership positions that don't get along with one another. And Paul says that won't fly. You can't stay there because of the gospel mission, because of the transforming power of the gospel at work within you. You can and you should reconcile with your brother or your sister in Christ. First of all, Paul instructs the women themselves, resolve the manner. He didn't pick sides. The Greek verb parakaleo, I urge, I exhort, I plead, I beg you. He used it twice. I beg you, Euodia. I beg you, Syntyche. Resolve this conflict. It has to be resolved. He begged them. And so he didn't pick size. He gave them equal responsibility. And by the way, when there is conflict, 10 out of 10 times, it's, never, it's not one-sided. We all have responsibility in conflict. And we like to say, well, that one started it, or this one did that, and if they hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have done that. And I, Paul's saying, hey, it doesn't matter how it got started. It matters where it is, and it matters where we're going. So we need to resolve this for the sake of the gospel. I implore you. Second, Paul calls for these ladies to be of the same mind, which literally means agree together. They're in conflict, and he said, hey, you need to agree together about what you can agree together and what can we agree together to say, think the same thing. Literally, that's what the Greek word is. Think the same way. What can they think the same way about? Jesus. What can they think the same way about? The gospel mission that they were called to do. They may have different strategy and different preferences about how they do what they do, but they're going to come together in the name of Jesus because that's where our unity is in Christ. 
They're going to come together with the mission that God's called the church to be on called making disciples who make disciples. That brings us together, the gospel mission. Sometimes we have disagreements and different ideas, and sometimes there's strength by different ideas coming together, but those different ideas have to come together for the sake of the gospel. These ladies were at an impasse. Paul says you need to be of the same mind, thinking the same way, having right attitudes about one another, because guess what? You're both sisters in Christ, and you're both sinners saved by grace. Neither one is better than the other. Hello. A lot of times in conflict, we want to hang on to our pride and not be obedient to what Jesus calls us to do. Such like-mindedness that Paul called them to have is imitating what we see in Jesus spelled out in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. He had some entitlements. He didn't claim them. He could have, but he didn't. What did he do? He emptied himself out. For who? Others. Others. Sometimes in conflict, it may sound like, well, you may have a point and you may have a a valid point. You may be right there, but for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the mission, for the sake of family unity, you need to love and to forgive. Paul specifies the sphere and the agreement. It's in the Lord, not in your ideas. It's in the Lord, not in your denomination. It's in the Lord that we can stand firm, and it's in the Lord that we can rejoice of what He's already done, is doing, and will do in our life. We need to understand this kind of agreement is not uniformity. We remain unique individuals. We may maintain our preferences. We may maintain our thoughts about how it needs to be done but we don't stand firm on our preferences and our thoughts about how it needs to be done to the point of dividing a congregation. Paul calls for intervention. Look at verse 3. Paul alerts the whole church, public letter being read out loud, and he urges a true partner to help these women. Help these women. These women were women who were co-laborers, came along side by side with the apostle in the gospel mission. They're women who had their hands to the plow and were doing a good work. They're women that came to an impasse, and he challenged them first. You resolve this conflict, but by the way, my true companion, help these women if they can't get it. Hey, dear church, we have responsibility with one another. Part of one another living out that aspect is caring about others to the point that when they are in conflict to the point it's creating division in a life group, on a worship team, in the body of Christ, on a staff. Do you know staff teams can have conflict? We're all good as long as they know I'm right and what I say goes and everything's good. But when it creates unhealthy division, we as believers are challenged to make it right by the power of God at work within us, just like we were reconciled to Christ. But if we can't, then sometimes we need spiritual people, not meddlers, not not, uh, busybodies. We need spiritual people who love us to speak truth into us. What is Paul doing in this passage? 
He's loving them enough to speak truth into them because it breaks his heart to see them divided and then in conflict, and it breaks his heart even more to see the church divided. As members of the church, we must eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit, Ephesians 4.3. That's for all of us. Don't let your fear of meddling keep you from seeking to be helpful to people who can't reconcile that issue themselves. It might be a life group leader. It might be a deacon. It might be a staff member. It might be a fellow brother or sister in Christ that is laboring with us. There's a difference between meddling in somebody else's business and seeking gospel-centered reconciliation. Not easy, but needed. This type of reconciliation is always under the Lord's authority. It's always for the Lord's mission. It always leads to the praise and glory of our Father. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. It's always done by the power of God at work within us. The Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. And we are to live together, serve together, walk together until Jesus comes again. And then verse 4 is just that attitude of praise. We're going to come back to it next week, so I'm not going to hit it hard. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's a theme. It's a theme. Do you think Euodia and Syntyche can rejoice when they resolve conflict? I bet you they do. And I bet you they're in the body together, standing side by side, singing praises to the one who saved their soul. See, we can do that in the Lord when reconciliation is sweet, and we are called to be reconciled with those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Then he said, let your gentleness, let your reasonableness be known to all, for the Lord is at hand. And and we'll hit this more next week. The Lord is at hand could have two meanings. His coming is near or his present, his nearness. But either way, either one is true biblically, and either way, it stirs us to let our gentleness be known to one another. Stand firm, dear brother and sister, in the Lord. This honors our Savior. Conflict is real. It's coming. If you're not in conflict today, you'll be in conflict in the days ahead. But when it happens, how will you respond? Let me point you back to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And let that mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, esteeming others. And for the sake, first and foremost, of the gospel that change me of my Savior, and secondly, for the sake of that person over there that I'm in conflict with, that he loved enough to give his life and shed his blood for and redeem them. For the sake of that dear child of God, I want to be together and bring honor to my Savior. By the power of the gospel, conflicts can be reconciled, and when they are, only one person is glorified, and his name is Jesus. We're not a perfect church, and we're not going to be this side of heaven. But when conflict happens, if we follow Paul's words, if we follow the example of our Savior, Christ can be glorified. And I can promise you when that happens, the watching world in our community 
will take note that there's something different about imperfect people called Liberty Baptist Church. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that by your power and by your grace that you'd help us stand firm in you and in the power of your might. Father, we recognize it has to be that resurrection power at work within us to enable us. And Father, I thank you for your word that part of the authenticity of your word is that it shows the blemishes of a sinful people, even children of God. And I thank you that you, Father, inspired the Apostle Paul to include this conflict and this letter to a good church filled with wonderful, godly people to give us a warning and a reminder that conflict is inevitable, but being reconciled to a brother or sister is commanded. And it is commanded for the sake of the gospel. And only by your power, but by your power that is at work in us, we can yield to the authority of Jesus. And we can love a brother or a sister who has hurt us. We can forgive them instead of harboring bitterness and resentment and envy and jealousy. And we can experience that peace that passes all understanding that will guard our heart and mind in Christ Jesus as we walk in obedience. But Father, more than anything else, this brings your name glory when we respond like our Savior. So Father, I don't know where the relationships are with every member of Liberty Baptist Church, but you do. So Father, I pray that you'll help us on our Live It Out this week that we will pray and ask you if there is a relationship that is in disrepair, a relationship where there's tension, where there's strife, where there's conflict, that we'll pray about it first, that we'll seek our life to be rid of all sin that we're aware of, and that we'll be in tune with your Holy Spirit and move toward them in love and grace. And Father, that it, there will be reconciliation for your glory. Father, this is the body of Christ. And this is a value that is different than the world. So let us hold on to this gospel value called reconciliation and strive together in unity for the sake of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.